Heritage Park Baptist Church, we make apprentices to Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit heritagepark.org. Hey everybody, my name is Trent. I have the privilege of being the pastor here and I want to introduce you to my good friend, Brad. Everybody say hello to Brad. Brad is actually going to help me preach this morning. He's been lacking just a little. Yeah, so I needed help. That's why he's here. Uh, Brad has been a great friend and um, uh, specifically on this particular issue, a great dialogue partner in thinking about some of the things that we're going to think about today in the sermon. So wanted to... Uh, just let you hear him think out loud. So it's going to be great. Uh, we are in a series um, called Unashamed. And the way that we've been thinking through this is that we are unashamed in our worship of God and our witness to one another. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, we primarily have been talking about our, our uh, being unashamed in our worship of God. And so how we posture our hearts, uh, how we posture our bodies, even how we sing, how we engage the things that we bring to God in settings like this and many more, uh, that this is being unashamed in our worship because of all that Jesus has done for us, our response is an unashamed worship. Um, and uh, t today really is the, the linchpin of the series. It's the hinge. And so we're going to turn uh, today. I think God's going to challenge us and, and turn us outward. It's a natural progression for us to offer worship to God and then witness to the world. That's a natural progression. Uh, but also just some of the things that are in our future as a church family, uh, we need to be thinking about our unashamed worship of God and then our unashamed witness um, to the world around us. So I want to um, uh, pray and then anchor us in this text from Romans chapter 1. Let me, let me pray. Um, Father, we gladly gather this morning and we need to hear from you. And so by your Holy Spirit, come and speak and say the things to us. Challenge us, uh, push us, convict us, um, uh, encourage us. Whatever we need today, God, would you speak to us? What we don't need to hear is from two men. We need to hear from you. So set yourself down in our midst here. And as you have done for millennia now, and in settings on this continent and other settings around the world, would you go to work by your spirit and through your word to make us into who you want us to be, individually and also as a church family. We ask all of this in Jesus' name, and everybody said... Amen and amen. So the series is really anchored in Romans chapter 1. And so I just want to put this uh, before your eyes again, this verse from Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Uh, put your eyes on it. And then as we've done the past several weeks, I want to read it together once you've got eyes on it. You ready? Read with me. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So the good news of Jesus, that he has um, carried our sin, he has borne our uh, brokenness and our shame, he has taken all of that on himself so that we don't have to carry it anymore. That is the good news. That is the gospel. And it is, that is the power of God for salvation. So that everyone who turns to him in faith, puts their trust in Jesus and what he's done on their behalf, he can uh, not only uh, put them in right relationship with God, but radically reorient their lives, transform their lives, so that they begin to look and act and think and believe and feel and all the other things like Jesus did. There are two truths that we've been carrying throughout this series, and I want to highlight both of them here. Uh, the first one is we don't define God for ourselves or our, define ourselves for God. That's a temptation in us to say, oh, we don't particularly like that kind of God. We'll just redefine him. Or to say, I'm pretty sure God doesn't like this kind of me, therefore I'll redefine myself for him. Either way, uh, we can't do that. We have to uh, receive 
perceive him as he is and then understand what he has said about us. We don't define ourselves for God or, uh, excuse me, we don't define God for ourselves or ourselves for God. And the second one, um, we're actually going to see in the text today. Uh, this second truth, um, uh, this, this particular text that, we, that we're going to look at here, that, this was the, the key thing for me in thinking about this series. And it's why I, um, we put this sermon in the middle because uh, we wanted this to be the hinge looking backward in our worship, looking forward in our witness, and here it is, that those who express, excuse me, experience God's grace deeply express their passion boldly. In our witness uh, to the world, that's where we're headed, where we've been is in our worship to God. Those who experience God's grace deeply express passion boldly. So I want to read together Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. If you don't have a Bible, there's some on the tech booth back there. Feel free to go grab one. Uh, and if you, uh, there it is. Uh, and if you are a user of the Bible app, you can open up your app and find that live event and track along with me. You ready? Luke chapter seven, verse thirty-six. Uh, one of the Pharisees asked him, "That's Jesus." One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. Uh, When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Uh, And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she's a sinner. Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. We're talking about substantial sums here, okay? I mean, like years and years worth of wages and and less. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. So everybody gets the economics of this. Uh, I I owed somebody, uh, or excuse me, let's put it this way. Uh, Somebody owed me $50 million and somebody owed me uh, $500. I forgave them both. Who's going to love me more? The millions of dollars guy, right? And that's the economics that Jesus is speaking of. Verse 44, turning to the woman, toward the woman, he said, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. She's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, a a sign of greeting. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. Hey, she's glad I'm here. Uh, You did not anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. She loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. That's a powerful, powerful statement right there. And so I want to speak for a minute here um, about uh, this idea of Jesus at the table. Have you ever been to a table that you're not sure that you fit at or you're really uncomfortable at? Anybody? Anybody? Uh, This Friday, uh, like two days ago, um, I got invited to... the seminary that I graduated from was having a gathering of uh, Houston alum and pastors and that kind of thing. And so uh, the dean was going to be there and all these, you know, bigfalutin guys. And um, I, don't, I don't typically like these gatherings and I've, I've typically avoided them, to be honest. True statement. But this invite came in. It was pretty late uh, in the week and the invite came in. And I'm like, Ugh, 
I think I'm actually supposed to go. I don't feel great about that. When I showed up, the guy who invited me said, I'm so glad you came. I know you've been really busy with your church and you haven't been always able to get away. I'm really glad you came today. I said, I know my church. I mean, it keeps me really busy. He goes, they must. I said, they're extraordinary sinners. Like you should see. (laughs) That's not what I said about most of you. This is not what I said. So So I showed up. So there, there are several things that were at play here. Number one, I rolled in kind of how I roll in basically everywhere else except Sunday morning. I had on a pair of jeans, button-down shirt, my uh, Mr. Rogers cardigan sweater, and my loafers, okay? That's how I rolled in. Uh, everybody else was in like sports coats and slacks. A couple of them were in suits and stuff. It was at the Houstonian. Anybody? Well, that's Swankyville over there. Yeah, that zip code, I, I can't even drive through that zip code, okay? But there it was, okay? And so we ate at the Houstonian, that kind of thing. We sat there, all of these people. And all the while, um, I am feeling uncomfortable. And it's a gathering of pastors. So everybody's like talking about their church and telling war stories. And uh, I didn't say this in the 8.30. There's this one gal who's sitting kind of diagonal from me. She's uh, 26 years old, been in ministry about five minutes. And she's just looking around the table at all, at all of us 40-somethings going, I'm not sure I want to sit here with y'all. I get the feeling, lady, I don't want to sit here either. Because there's preacher jokes and stories. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff happening. I'm not comfortable in that environment. That's not, those, those are not typically my people. So some of you have sat at other tables. I'm going to take you back to the lunchroom for a second in seventh grade, let's say. That's what you call nervous laughter. You're at the table. You see that person, whoever that person is coming out of the door, carrying their tray. You think to yourself, I don't have enough backpacks near me to make sure that they don't sit by me. Am I wrong? How about this one? Maybe you're the person coming out of the door. Maybe you're the person coming out of the door. And you think to yourself, oh Lord, please, please let there be somewhere for me to sit. Um, What I want to say this morning to get us thinking about this is this. We've been talking about us being unashamed in our lives. I want to say this. Jesus is unashamed. And he is unashamed to sit at Simon's table. Jesus shows up in places that we don't expect him very often. Like Simon is a Pharisee. If you know anything, and maybe you didn't grow up around church, but just to give you a a brief hint of what's going on, uh, the, the, the stuff that was happening in that time... Uh, Jesus and the Pharisees were like oil and water. They did not mix. But what happens in verse 36? One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. He went into the Pharisee's house. He did. And he reclined there at the table. We all have tables that, that, that we label as the place that we don't want to be. We don't want to be seen. We don't want to be caught there. We would rather die than be there or be seen to be there. We think somehow that if we sit at this table, we will become complicit in what's going on at the table or people from the outside will see that we have somehow compromised our faith, integrity, life, stance, whatever it may be. We think, I don't want to be there. Yet, what do we see? Jesus is unashamed and he shows up at Simon's table. He is willing. uh, He's willing to sit there. Um, uh, You don't expect him to be there. But he sit there. And I, th- I, think, I think this is a signal of grace. Why? Because Jesus could disagree with this guy spiritually without spurning him socially. Now, in our cultural moment, nobody does that well. 
We unfriend people on social media for way less than that. They put up a stupid picture or a meme or some other thing that we don't like, and we're like, I've never said anything. <laughs> Nuclear option, right? They, I saw a bumper sticker on their car. Forget it. We can't be friends. I heard them tell a story. Oh, we can't be friends. And here we are. Jesus is dealing with the very core issue of life, like what we think and, and understand to believe about God. And, and he's saying, yeah, this guy and I, we're on the very, very different pages, but yet he refuses to spurn him socially. And that, that, that I think, is a signal of grace. And I, I just point that out, church family, simply because there are people in our lives with whom we disagree spiritually. But it doesn't mean we have to turn them off socially. Jesus is unashamed to sit at Simon's table. Thanks. I'll give it back to you. Well, as Trent said, my name is Brad, and I get the privilege of sitting about over there every Sunday at 11 o'clock. Um, and my people are over there. I see all of y'all that I say hi to in the mornings. Um, you know, thinking through that and thinking about this issue of who is ashamed and unashamed we see not only is Jesus unashamed to sit at the table of Simon, but he's also unashamed of this woman who has somehow made her way into the, into the room and at the table. Um, and this woman didn't belong there, as we see in verse 37 and 38. She didn't have a spot. This wasn't the type of woman that would be invited into that mix. And so uh, she was there with her, Mr. Roger Sweater, at that time. I have two kids. I have one that's a freshman in college, and she uh, came home just, to, just for me today. No, probably not, but she's about to head back. And I have a seventh grade boy who's about to turn 13 this week. And both of them have a phrase that they utter to me from time to time. And I don't know if I'm the only parent that has ever heard this, but I'm betting probably not. They like to use this simple phrase, that's disgusting. Anybody else ever heard that from their kid? That's disgusting. They have it. I mean, it's everything from how it relates to foods um, or how it relates to other types of uh, things that they see. Um, my son has this thing where if he walks in the room and my wife and I are watching a medical show, a medical show, not on the medicine channel or the health channel. I'm talking NBC medical show. Okay. When he, she, he walks in the room and we happen to be seeing there's a scene of a gruesome accident or there's a scene of a surgery going on and they're showing a little bit more than, you know, what they did when I was a kid. They, um, he is typically would be like, that's disgusting. And he'll turn and leave and go out the door. And my daughter, she has a little bit different thing that disgusts her. She has an aversion to anything, any type of food that isn't somehow related to a chicken nugget or a pizza. Okay? Everything else is disgusting. And we go from there. I heard them both, I think, this weekend. Um, and it's one of those weird things. Because I ask myself, why do people have different disgust uh, domains? Why do you think one thing is disgusting and I don't? Why do I like to watch surgical shows and my son, it's disgusting to him? Why is it that um, Trent has this appeal. He just loves these fajitas that he talked about two weeks ago. Anyone? Was anyone here that day? Anyone? Okay. 
All right, he might as well have driven me to Chewy's after church because that is, I couldn't go anywhere else. My car just automatically started going to Chewy's until I could get, not fajitas though, I got something else, but it equally as good to me. But when Trent mentioned that, some of you were like, yes, I'm on my way. Which place are we going to go? Loopies or Chewy's or Papacito? Where are we going? Some of you right now are now, I've already hooked you. You're already out the door. Fajitas. Yep, fajitas again. We, we need to market that, I think. We could Take a cut get or something, that. I don't know. Um, but then some of you in the room may have heard fajitas that day and right now, and you're like, oh gosh, I can't even think about eating that. Like, it's grossing you out. Well, why does, it, does that happen? We see psychologists tend to study behavior patterns, right? And they study these, these disgust patterns, these disgust domains. And basically, they fall into three different categories of disgust that each of us have in our life. The first one is the area of core disgust. It has everything to do with food. It's an oral disgust. It, anything that you would eat, anything, it's just not right, you know. My wife is a science teacher. She dissected uh, shellfish, you know, and all of that. No, she won't eat seafood now. Um, she's disgusted by that. It's a food issue. Then there's also the uh, what's called the animal reminder disgust. And that is basically anything that reminds us of our mortality. Death or bodies, accidents, anything that would uh, expose parts of our bodies that aren't normally, like the insides, you know, that just, oh, can't handle that. And then there's a third area called sociomoral disgust. And sociomoral disgust is related to the social uh, behaviors that you and I may exhibit or the uh, the social groupings that we exist and the moral actions that we uh, have. And so we might be disgusted by a certain group of people because they behave a certain way or they dress a certain way or they act a certain way. And we may be opposed to a certain neighbor down the street who has a different moral code than what we have or we may have um, a behavior that causes us to kind of back off from people. And Jesus, in our story today, he finds himself, I mean, he is right in the middle of this socio-moral disgust. This woman has entered into this space, and he is right in it. By all accounts, this woman in our story isn't someone that should have been there. She's someone that should have been avoided, maybe even shunned at the time. You see, but there's no doubt, also, I think, that Simon, who's the host, Simon didn't want her there either. I think there was probably some sense of embarrassment in Simon that this woman made her way into his house and now she is coming up to his guest of honor. That's not a cool thing. That's like, whoa, wait a second. You're not supposed to be here. How did you get in here? And he's nervous about that. You know, if I was to bring out a white bucket of paint, just a pure white bucket of paint, set it down, it's clean, it's pure, nothing has touched it. And I took a, another bucket of paint, a maroon bucket of paint. Let's say that. How many drops of that paint would I have to drop into the white bucket of paint until that bucket of paint was no longer pure and clean? How many? One. Wait, one? You're telling me one little bitty drop of paint in a five-gallon bucket of paint is now contaminated the whole bucket? That's what psychologists will describe as negative dominance, negativity dominance. And that is that the one negative thing dominates the positive in an issue like that. And so we adapt that in our own lives, right? 
We can't have that one little interaction with that group of people because if I do, then they will contaminate me and my life or me and my family, and I can't have that. And so we set ourselves apart in that way. But Jesus, however, reverses this negativity dominance. And he does what, as Richard Beck says, it's positivity dominance. And the purity and the cleanliness and the, and the righteousness of Jesus is so great that it actually overdoes and dominates the single negative thing. So we have this example of someone who refuses to be dominated by the negative and showcases the positive. And so we move in that as well. You see, this woman, she had nowhere else to turn. She had nowhere else to go at this point in her life. She had heard about this Jesus, maybe even from the chapter before. You know, we see in the chapter before, Jesus had the Sermon on the Plain, and he uh, has a pretty large teaching moment there. And she may have been involved and heard some of that, but whatever she knew about Jesus, she knew that he was her only hope. And so she enters a place that she shouldn't go, around people that she shouldn't be with to meet someone. And she comes into this room and contact with someone like this would carry a certain amount of shame with it. There would be a certain amount of disgust, a certain amount of, ooh, I can't believe she's in here. What are we going to do? But his extension of grace to this woman as she expresses a move toward him, this, this grace he has for her moves her. It changes her. And her experience of grace led her to a profound and unashamed expression of worship at that time. Like she didn't just see Jesus and high five him. She like weeps over him. She doesn't just come into his presence. She brings tears and hair. She brings sorrow and sin. She brings boldness. She brings ointment with her. She brings worship. And she brings her faith with her. You see, sitting at that table is filled with all of these men that looked at her with contempt. And the pride at that table could have, it could have impeded the grace that she came into that room looking for. She came there looking for grace, and they could have impeded that. They could have stopped that, but Jesus would have nothing of it. The shame that they cast toward her, oh man, that shame was thwarted by the indelible grace of an unashamed king. He wasn't going to let their shame affect her, and she would never, ever be the same again. She would never be the same she had been given much at that moment. And now she could go and love and forgive much too. So Jesus is unashamed to sit at Simon's table. Some of us are more inclined that way. But he's also unashamed to receive the affections, devotion even, of this woman who doesn't belong. Why though? Why was Jesus unashamed? And I, I think this is so critical as we... Uh, kind of turn the hinge here from our worship of who he is um, to our witness about who he is. Jesus is unashamed because he's unafraid. And what is he unafraid of? He's unafraid of our sins. 
He's unafraid. We'll cast it in these two ways. He is unafraid of our external sins. Now, this particular lady here, um, uh, these, these external sins are the ones that are very easily seen. Okay? We don't, we don't have to guess very much. Again, back in verse 36. Um, excuse me, verse 37. Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. Okay? She, she learned that Jesus was there, went there. Um, down in verse uh, 40. Um, 30, sorry, I'm looking here, uh, 39. Um, the Pharisee who would invite him saw this. He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this was who is touching him, for she's a sinner. So we get this, right? We get this. This is an easily, these external sins are easily seen. For all the adults in the room, do we have to think very hard about what the profession was of this woman? A woman of the city, a sinner. You got it? Good. Okay? The immorality, the uncleanness, the whatever. Pick your, pick your word here that goes with this. Easily seen. We all have sins that are easily seen. So kids, help me here a little bit. Think about some sins that are easily seen. If you're in like fifth grade and under, what, let's just take 10 seconds here. What are a couple of sins that are easily seen? Kids? Lying. Good. What's another one? Stealing, is that what you said? Yeah, stealing. One more? Cam? Hurting other people. Like you don't want to hit your brother, right? That'd be bad. And it would be easily seen by your mom. So I mean, on top of those, both of those things are true. Okay? So Jesus is unafraid of these external sins. But these easily seen sins are, are sins that um, we have to... Uh, we would have to, we would have to, as growing adults, we would have to work harder to hide. Yeah, well, what external sins are we afraid of? You know, if Jesus wasn't afraid of this woman's sin, but you and I sometimes are paralyzed by other people's sin. Sometimes the fear of their sin is so um, imposed upon us that we can't move, we can't act, we don't know what to do around them. We, so, in essence, if we don't know how to handle that, then we actually remove ourselves from it and we actually leave the space. And so you think through that. What sins am I afraid of? What sins in other people uh, make me nervous? What, what activities am I uncomfortable with when I see others participating in them? What actions offend me as a Christ follower? What attitudes in other people actually make me angry? And, and, and kind of compound interest there. It kind of builds. It, doesn't do, it starts with a little bit of anger, but then the more you hear them, the more those, uh, those uh, innocent little jokes, the more they're told, the more you realize that's not just a joke. They actually believe that. And I'm actually offended by that. And then what other behaviors do you have that you, abs- do you see in other people that you absolutely don't want to have your children exposed to? Because that will keep you from people, won't it? That will keep you from neighbors on your street. I have a set of neighbors about three doors down from me that, that I really wanted to get to know when they first moved in. They were transplants after Hurricane Katrina from Baton Rouge. And um, man, I love... I love this family. I got to know them a little bit. But, man, they have a different moral code than I do. Um, they think a little bit differently than me. 
And we, we had some, it was nerve-wracking from, from moments there. And they have a daughter that's my daughter's age. And man, you want, you know, if you're on a street and you have three or four girls on the street and they're all in the same grade, you want them to go play, right? Just to get out of your house a little bit. You want them to go play, go play. No, man, I wasn't sure because they held a different standard of what was right and what was wrong. And it made me nervous. And I wrestled with that. They invited her, my daughter to a birthday party. And I wanted her to go, but I was a little nervous. I mean, as parents, we were nervous about that. But we fought through it. We trusted G. We just said, God, you're wanting us to build relationships with people that we live around. And if we go, I'm just going to trust that you're not going to, that that's not going to hurt us. It's not going to hurt her. And so we went. She and I went together. Boy, it was a party, man. I mean, I don't know that I've ever seen a five or six. I don't remember if she was five or six at the time. It was kind of in that range. I'm like, man, I, this isn't like any kid party we've ever been to. I mean, this was not Chuck E. Cheese or Urban Air, okay? This was a party with kids at it. But they didn't think anything about it. But I did. It made me nervous. Fast forward a couple years. His dad had come to live with them and his dad had passed away. And I got to go to the funeral of that man who I had gotten to know at bus stops and just waiting around. And that, that it allowed me some space to uh, minister to a family that I never would have had an opportunity to. It, it's opened up a friendship that I never would have had. And it worked because we were willing to take a risk. We took a chance. And nothing bad ever happened to my daughter. Nothing bad ever happened to me. And we've got good friends that still live three doors down from us. But some things will keep us from that. They'll keep us from other people. You may be missing your best friend. You may be missing the most redemptive story you've ever heard if you leave because somebody else's sin offends you or hurts you or makes you angry. And so you stick with it. But all of these things, I don't mean to minimize these activities, these sins that we see in other people, these external sins, they're not, they are important. They are, we do need to see them. We just don't need to be afraid of them. You so, <laughs> we're not going to catch their sin like we catch a cold from somebody. So you don't have to sit, worry that you're going to get it. You know, it's like, oh my gosh, I went to that, I went to my neighbor's cookout. Whoa, now I'm finding myself going and buying things I don't normally buy. No, that's not how it works. But what do you do with it? You need to be thoughtful about your own struggles. Be honest here. We all have struggles, right? You got to be careful with those. I'm a guy that overeats. <laughs> Shock, right? Okay, lately, lately, I've been trying to get into my health a little bit. I had that big 5-0 birthday, you know. All of you, I can see the shock in your eyes because you thought he was older than me, right? Yep, I can tell. I can see it in you. Um, but I, I did this, and I have to eat a little bit better. I have to eat a little more healthy. And so I've been working really hard at that, and I'm on about 11 or 12 days, okay? Um, yeah, everybody's like, oh, yeah, you just started. Okay, good luck with that. Um, I'm in it. And about day three of that, you know, those are vulnerable days, right? Like you're either going to stick with it or not. And those early days, in about day two or three, I get a, I'm supposed to come up here for a meeting. And I get a phone call from my friend Trent here. And he tells me, hey, we got uh, leftover food from the marriage conference. If you're hungry, come on up and we'll heat it up. 
Okay? If you were at the marriage conference, you know the food that I'm talking about. This is lasagna and fettuccine Alfredo. Like, that's like kryptonite to anybody trying to work out and keep their body healthy. But it was good on Friday night. That was before I decided I'd start working on this. Okay? So, no, anyway, I'm in that. And I had already made plans to pick up a sandwich at my house, something small, and get over here. So I, I said, real fast, nope, I'm good. You got to do it quick or you're gonna, you'll, comprom- you'll change your mind. You got to do it fast. Boom, I'm out. I'm gone. So I come over and I get it. You see, I could have eaten lasagna and fettuccine Alfredo with Trent. The, the issue wasn't that Trent was inviting me to eat bad food for me. The issue wasn't that it was bad food to start with. I could have eaten it. But in my situation, personally, I needed to say no at that moment. Sometimes you and I have to say no to things that we see other people doing. We have to pull ourselves out. We can't be part of that because of our issues. But never say, I can't be part of that because of their issue. Mm -hmm. It's not about their issue. It's about your issue. So we refuse because of us, not because of them. So those are the external sins. He's not afraid of those. Uh, But he's also not afraid of the internal sins. And this story is rife with them. Okay? If external sins are easily uh, seen, internal sins are easily hidden. And uh, the older we get, the better we get at it. But let's just, let's identify a few here. Uh, This list is pretty long. Uh, Pride. In in this uh, this story, there is pride. Hey, let's host him. We'll come on, come on. It'll be a good thing. There's pride. There's inhospitality. You didn't give me water. You didn't give me a kiss of greeting. Um, the, the, the host chose uh, convenience over service. Uh, there is judgmentalism. How dare she come to this party? There is idolatry. He can't be a prophet. If he did, if he was a prophet, he would know. The crazy thing is, Jesus knew. And he still chose to engage this woman. And finally, and I, boy, this is a word for us today. There is a, there is a commitment to correctness without compassion. May that never mark us. A, a commitment to correctness without compassion. At the top of the list, maybe none of those things are your things. Maybe you're not pri- it's not pride or inhospitality, but maybe something like this. Uh, anger. It's an internal sin. Unforgiveness. It's an internal sin. It is my pastoral experience that those two things in particular mark kind of our cultural uh, experience in life, uh, particularly when we baptize them. And the way that we baptize them goes something like this. Man, I see that going on. That must offend Jesus. And Jesus needs help in carrying that offense. So I'll take it up for him. Oh, that makes Jesus mad. And uh, he needs my help to maintain his anger. Therefore, I'll just be angry with him. Nobody ever thinks that way. I probably get that. I just, like in here. I'm just telling you, other people have sat in my office and that's been their motivation. They think that they're actually doing God a favor by carrying their anger or their unforgiveness. But what do we know? What, what do those things do? They tear us down. They, they actually distance us from God. And so we, we don't want to carry anger. We don't want to carry unforgiveness. These internal sins and many, many more. Um, are, are dangerous, uh, so they only end up hurting us. So why, why is Jesus unafraid of these sins? Well, look at the end of the story. 
uh, verse 47 again. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. She loved much. He who is forgiven little loves little. This is the truth that we've been harping on. Those who experience God's grace deeply express their passion boldly. Uh, Verse 48, and he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? They, They were good Jews. They knew there was only one who could forgive sins. Who's that one? God. And here Jesus is acting like he's God. Because he is. He's the Messiah who would go to the cross and die in our place and for our sins, bearing our brokenness, carrying our shame so that we don't have to. Rising again as the victorious one. I told you I was at that table Friday morning, driving all the way across town, took forever to get there, swanky, out of place, all the whole thing. We're there about 15 minutes, 20 maybe. We had ordered, I had drunk coffee and all this, and ordered, there was some really expensive French toast thing that came out, and I was like, oh, okay, I'm not sure what that cost, but it was good. And about 15, uh, 20 minutes into this experience, uh, a lady comes to the door and comes and actually sits right across from me. This is a picture of her. Her name is Sean, Sean Shannon. Uh, she's quite possibly the godliest person I know. Uh, she was my BSU director when I was in college back in the day. Well, if any of you sent kids to um, UMHB, she was the um, director there for a while. Uh, I got up as soon as I saw her walk in and, and sit down. I got up from my spot and went over and hugged her and did not want to let her go. It's been 15 years probably since I've seen her. And I thought, this is why I'm supposed to be here. And she looked at me across the table at one point. She goes, is it okay to say that every so often I just want to reach across and pinch your cheek? I'm like, just do it, Sean. Just do it. I love her. I love her. One person's presence at the table made all the difference for me. One person's presence at the table made all the difference. For Simon, the presence of Jesus could have made a difference. For the woman, the presence of Jesus did make a difference. One person at the table made all the difference. So he says to her, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And we're going to come now to a different table. We're going to celebrate communion together. A A reminder that the Messiah, Jesus, has the authority to forgive sins because he paid for sins. He has the authority to to say to us, you are clean because he was the one who made us clean.